Lord, you give us the enduring word spoken by you to your people in ancient times, reverberating down through history because it is living and active, coming to us now as living and active as it was when you first spoke it to the prophets or to Moses, to the gospel writers, to the apostle Paul, um, to David in this case. This is your word. We, as people, are frail. We fade. Your word does not. This world fades. Your word does not. So we pray this morning, by the power of your spirit, that this unfading word would touch our souls and shape us. In Jesus' name, amen. Psalm 62, we did look at Psalm 62 last week, and usually on Labor Day, I take a step back and we talk about, well, often I would say, not usually, but often, we talk about work because Labor Day. And we're kind of doing, there's an intersection of work in Psalm 62, one part of Psalm 62 that we did not talk about last week. I wanted to press in uh, a little bit on a concept that's introduced here. And this is the concept of glory. Glory. Something you and I are built for. We kind of sometimes shy away from that reality as people who are maybe a little bit more theologically conservative because we somehow maybe think, is, it, is that pushing against the Bible's teaching on sin? Short answer, no. You're built for glory. I'm built for glory. Sin comes in and disrupts and disconnects us from that glory. But in Jesus, that glory gets restored. That's where we're going. Have you guys, anybody seen the, the pictures from the James Webb Telescope? The deep space, this unbelievable pictures. James Webb Telescope was launched at the end of 2021 after 30 years of being built. This telescope took 30 years to be built. It cost $10 billion. Allegedly, that was a a teamwork between the United States and Europe, although the U.S. was $9.7 billion of that, so I'm not teamwork, but... um, weighs 13,000 pounds, and they had to launch this telescope into space on a, on a rocket that it, and it gets out in space and it begins to unfold. It's just, remember, there's a, I think it's on Netflix, there's a documentary of it. It's a fascinating reality. So it gets in, in space and it begins to deploy, and there's this large mirror that's really made up of 16 or 18 interlocking hexagonal mirrors that are four and a half feet wide and it gets out in space and it begins, it's like it's in a cylinder and it comes out and it begins to go into, uh, come together perfectly to make this 21 and a half foot, you know, mirror in all directions. So the diameter of the mirror is 21 and a half feet. Because out in space, the sun is so intense There has to be a a sun shield on the James Webb telescope. So after it gets out in space, uh, before the mirror unfolds, the sun sun shield unfolds, and it is basically a canvas, a tarp, made of very thin plastic that's about the same uh, thickness as a piece of Bible paper, about half of the thickness of a regular piece of paper. It's the size of a tennis court and it gets out in space and it unfolds with these mechanical arms and it spreads out. And that's to prevent the sun from superheating the telescope because it needs to work at very cool degrees, but it, there's no atmosphere so the sun would just fry it even though it's a long ways from the sun. The James Webb Telescope is now one million miles from Earth in orbit. 
But the sun is so intense that it has to have this uh, sunscreen. So after that, gets, it's very easy to tear. So it gets unfolded. It's the size of a tennis court. Then another one, because there's layers of these things, there's actually five layers of this sunscreen. So another one, it's half, a, half as thick as that one. So a quarter of a, sh- a thickness of a sheet of paper unfolds very thin. It's like, I don't know, maybe this far, this far, above the next one. And there's five layers of this thing, not touching, uh, air, you know, non-air-gapped, but vacuum-gapped. So the heat doesn't go through it. And it all gets out there, and it gets out in space and unfolds. And it sends back these pictures of incredibly large galaxies at impossibly far distances away. Uh, here's the truly amazing part of all that. In this, there are 344 single points of failure. Now, what that means is that a single point of fa- failure is this. If one thing happens, everything is broken. If one thing happens, if one thing goes wrong, it creates a cascading problem in the system and nothing works at all. And it's a, it started out as over 1,000 single points of failure. And as after 30 years of engineering, they got it down to 344 single points of failure that has to happen in space after it's you know, strapped to a rocket, shaken and out of the atmosphere and out in space now a million miles away, 344 things like one bolt shears off, one wiring harness comes loose, one crank gets stuck, done. 30, 30 years, gone. $10 billion, gone. All the hopes for deep space exploration, gone. 344 single points of failure. Now, so far, so good with lots of stress, I'm sure, and sleepless nights for those leaders of that whole project. 344 disproportionately impactful realities of the James Webb Telescope, any of which could cause the whole system to tank. All things go wrong. Today, we are looking at one disproportionately impactful reality in our life that if we're misaligned, can create a system-wide cascading failure. Could be what we might call a single point of failure in our own life. And that is rooted in the concept of glory. What it is, where it comes from. And specifically this, put this in your insert on the opposite side of the text. We are designed, friends, you and I, we are designed for a glory that comes from God and designed for a glory that rests on God alone. Today, I want to spend a couple minutes in Psalm 62. We saw this last week mostly because David mentions in Psalm 62 that concept of glory. And you and I know that in this craving for glory, our work and our vocation often is a source of that or a source for which we grasp for that glory. And as we celebrate Labor Day, uh, which is tomorrow, ironically for people who like work at Lowe's, it's not a day off, it's more work. I don't know how this works now in America, but we're allegedly celebrating labor and vocation, the American worker. Um, So we think about that, whether your work is a, a job, whether your work is a parent at home, or a student, student is a vocation, whether your work is actually looking for work right now or striving to be productive in retirement or some other phase of life, that is your vocation, you're calling your work. And we all have a vocation, uh, 
We all have that calling. We all have work to do. And it intersects in this passage with the concept of glory. So let's look at Psalm 62 one more time. Psalm 62, the superscription, to the choir master according to Jeduthun, a psalm of David, verse 1, for God alone my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken. So I'm going to review a little bit of last week. I encourage you to go listen to it online if you want to. I think it's very, this is a very helpful psalm. David begins by simply stating truth. He's making a confession of what's true. He's stating that to have access to it. And we said it literally says, only for God or alone for God is my soul built to be calm, to have a quiet soul. Any calm in my life actually and truly is rooted in the one for whom I'm created, God alone. He is, any, any safety, any deliverance, any salvation is rooted in God. He alone, alone God is my rock, my fortress, my deliverer, my solidness. So he says this, so he's, he's, he gets oriented to, toward the truth, but then he begins to think. He gets in his own head a little bit. Verse three, he thinks about his problems, his enemies. Now David has king-sized problems. We don't have that, but we still have issues. Verse three, how long will all of you attack a man to batter him like a leaning wall, a tottering fence. They only plan to thrust him down from his high position. They take pleasure in falsehood. They bless with their mouths, but inwardly they curse. So David's like talking, he's extreme, like all of you are doing this. That's the only thing you're trying to do. He looks around, he's like, everybody's my enemy and they only have one, one goal to bring me down. And he feels his weakness. He's like, I'm like a tottering fence or like a leaning wall. He's like, I, I can't take one more thing. So, I, you know, if you're blowing up balloons for your kid's birthday party and you're like, I want to make this as big as possible. Maybe you don't all do that. Dads do that, right? I want to make this as big as possible. And you get it to the point where you think one more quarter breath and this puppy is going to break. That's the point to tie it off, right? You want to make it as, like one more thing and it's going to just pop. David's like, that's where I am right now. I'm like a leaning, stretched out wall that's about ready to collapse or a tottering fence. Just one more wind gust comes and I'm done. I look good, I look strong, I look like the king, but I'm about to be taken out. Uh, Some of you have been there. Some of you are there. Right now, you don't have King David problems. None of you are kings. I'm not a king. But you know the pressure that comes with Distress, uncertainty, relational conflict, um, all kinds of things threaten our well-being. And they put a pressure on us where we say, you know, I, sometimes I am like a leaning wall or a tottering fence. I do look pretty solid on the outside, but internally, just one more half breath and it's all going, you know, it's just going to blow. Things that make us aware of the brokenness of our world. So David is oriented toward what is true, but then he begins to think about these things or something comes into his life that reminds him of that brokenness and there's a disorientation that sets in there. David's concern was that they were trying to bring him down from his high position. David's high position was that he is a, he's a king and undoubtedly this is true. They are trying, somebody's trying to bring him down. The thing most important to him, most important about him, what he valued the most, which added weight and significance to his life that he was king was under threat. It was jeopardized. 
That was David's high position. That was part of David's glory. So he's disoriented. And then, as we saw last week, there's the inflection point of the psalm. Verse 5, David says, For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence. For my hope is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. On God rests my salvation and my glory. My mighty rock, my refuge is God. Last week, we paid attention to one of two very important changes in this psalm from verse 1 and 2 to verse 5 through 7. And it is one we said is actually very helpful to us for peop- uh, as people for a sense of a, a quieted soul in a disquieted world. David goes from making a plain statement of the truth in verse 1, for God alone my soul waits in silence, to in verse 5, 6, and 7, to talking to himself. To, as it were, like taking himself by his shirt collar and say, listen to me, David. David, you listen to David. Soul, listen to me. He commands, for God alone, O my soul, wait in silence. He doesn't say, soul, do you feel like waiting in silence for God alone? He says, wait in silence. He's not listening to himself here, but he's redirecting and talking to himself in light of what is true. Today, in in our language, we might say something like this. You know, our first reaction and what we feel is not actually determinative of how we respond to something. Now, sometimes we're so used to reacting uh, immediately to everything, we feel like we believe that we have to respond how we feel immediately. And this is simply teaching us ancient neurobiology. (laughs) Actually, we don't. There's a training process. I don't know how long this took David to get here. You know, it could have been, we don't know how long these psalms took to write. Maybe it was right away. Maybe he had to wait a few days after thinking about his enemies. Maybe a few weeks, maybe a few months before he could talk to his soul. But we see the the progress there. He moves from orientation, this is true, disorientation, oh, my enemies and all this stuff in my life is going to destroy me, to reorientation by taking what's true about the Lord and the fullness of, we would say now, the fullness of the gospel realities, bring it into his life with some potency and preaching to himself. So this should give us great hope that there is a possibility of what we say call preaching the gospel to ourselves that leads to real change in our life, even when stuff's coming at us in real time. It's messy. We need each other for that, but we have this picture here, this movement. That's the first thing. That's all recap from last week. The second thing that we didn't talk about at all last week, in verse 1 and 2, David refers to God as his rock, his salvation, and his fortress. In verse 5, 6, and 7, he refers to him again as his rock, his salvation, and his fortress, and one other thing that has now come into view because of this distress. David says, God is the source of his glory. Verse 7, on God rests my salvation and my glory. That is a change from the beginning of this psalm. My kingship is my earthly glory is what he's saying. So I think what he's getting at is first, God upholds that. At some point, I will no longer have my kingship. One day, if if nothing else happens, I will close my eyes in death and I will no longer be king. God, I will be king as long as God wants me to be king. Secondly, the kingship is actually not the foundation of my glory. 
because my glory rests on God alone or alone God. So my kingship's not the foundation of my glory or my security's not the foundation of my glory or the current approval ratings of all the people. I don't know if kings had to worry about that. It's not the, not the foundation of my glory. On God rests my salvation and my glory. So glory in the scripture is a property of God first. It means, it's hard to get your words around this. It means grandeur, importance, brilliance. It's rooted in the Hebrew word for weight or weightiness, kavod, weightiness, uh, matter, it matters, you know, matter, like I matter. It's like there's a weightiness and importance to it. Weight, kavodness. And we're designed for that. It begins, so understanding glory begins with God first because he is the glorious one. We'll see why we begin with him. A good place to look is in Isaiah chapter 40. I put that in your insert. Isaiah 40. Look at God here. Verse 11, he will tend his flock like a shepherd. So you have this pastoral setting of a, a sheep and a shepherd. You remember Psalm 23 is a, back to that image. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. So this is a picture of God as wise, like a shepherd. He moves his sheep to a place where they can eat and where they can drink and they're safe. He knows their needs, right? He knows what needs to come in their life and what must be kept out of their life for their best good. They don't know. They're not a shepherd, they're just sheep. And God is an all-wise shepherd who directs his people, his sheep, uh, to the place that is good and right for them, even if it is a little scary and difficult. He's a wise shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. That's a picture of tenderness, of a shepherd picking up a lamb that is either weak or broken in some way, injured in some way, and carrying them. He will carry them in his bosom up to his chest and gently lead those that are with young. So this is a loving understanding here. This is talking about sheep, but if a, a sheep has just given birth, a wise shepherd's not gonna drive that sheep to go farther than she's ever gone before, right? This is a shepherd who knows what is needed and knows the frailty and the responsibility and, the, and what's going on in the life of his sheep to be tender with them. Now, of course, in this passage, sheep are a stand-in for the people of God. So this is a picture that God, even in the Old Testament, God knows his people. And he is aware of our frailties and our needs and our dispositions and what's going on in our life. And he gently leads those that are with young. I have to tell you, we did claim this little verse many times in our life when we were shepherding five little ones of our own, little kids trying to plant a church, you know, like hope we eat this week, hope we get, you know, enough money come in, all this kind of stuff, uncertainty, new in this part of the city, he gently leads those that are with young. If you have young, he gently leads you, right? I know most young parents feel like they're failing anyway, because like exhibit A, B, and C, aka their kids, like always show, like, oh my gosh. Again, we're, we're, again, we're with this thing, right? We're doing this. We're talking about this again. I can't believe this. He, he gently leads those who have young. He understands. Now, you don't have to have young to need gentle leadership. You simply have to have distress. And as we see in Hebrews 5, Jesus actually is uh, moved, magnetized toward us in our distress and our weakness. That's the kind of savior he is. 
And it was prefigured here where there's just praise. He gently leads those who have young. Friends, you have a gentle Savior. So, now this is English, I know. He, you gen- he gently leads those who are with young, period, one space, next sentence, and just back to back to that is a picture of God's immensity. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span? What's that talking about? Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? Talking about all the waters of the earth. So actually, I measured how much the hollow of my hand could uh, hold. It's one half an ounce, give or take, whatever fell, fell out of my hand. So one half ounce compared to all the waters on the earth. What's it, what's it communicating? This God who is tender and loving and knows your need and how it's different from your need and your need and gently leads all of you to what is good also is remarkably immense, bigger than we can imagine. Like you can hold an ounce in your hand, great. How about everything in your hand? Or uh, who has marked off the heavens with a span? A span is this, the distance between this part of your pinky and this part of your thumb. So for my hand, it's about nine and a half or 10 inches. That's a hand breadth, right? A span. Who's marked off the heavens with a span? Everything that James Webb Space Telescope sends back. Who's measured all of that? We can't even get a picture of all of that. And it's just saying, the Lord measures that. He's immense in that way. You know, sometimes critics of Christianity will say something like, well, if God is real, why would he make all that empty space? Well, because he likes it. And it's showing, like, I can measure this. It's not empty space to me. It's here in my hand. Right? This is the, showing the picture of the immensity of God right up to his tenderness. This is the God we get to serve. This is a picture of his glory. Behold, verse 15, the nation's are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. A little drop, one drop in a five-gallon bucket or dust on the scales. Nobody probably, even if you're trying to lose weight, you get up in the morning and step on the scales. Nobody probably before they do that gets down there and like wipes off all the dust. So it's like not one speck of dust more weighing me down to measure, Right? It's, we say it's negligible. The dust is negligible. Every nation in history has always thought they are the center of all of history. And the next five minutes, or for us, the next four years is the most important thing ever. And what the Lord says is this, negligible. Negligible compared to me, who is both immense and deeply personal to you. This is me. So he's a glorious God. This is, and this is about one picture. This is a, just a draw out of a, a couple verses in Isaiah 40. This is a God we're talking about. And then you have, glorious. And then you have these almost unbelievable words to start the book on page one of the Bible. In Genesis one, the creation account, that's the template, the paradigm for how we're supposed to think of our existence with God. Genesis one, verse 26. This is the, the creation account. The, the runway that we're supposed to think of life through. This lens we're thinking of life through. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and every every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over all the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. This glorious God creates, and the pinnacle of that creation are those who 
are stamped with or bear his image. People. Now, we're not going to get into all of what image may mean or reflect. There's literally tens, hundreds of thousands of pages written on that. Something along the lines of reflect and represent the one who is glorious. We are built originally to reflect and represent the one who is glorious. We are, and the avenues through which that reflection is, is be fruitful and multiply. That's an eye toward relationships and nurturing the next generation, causing growth there. And then to subdue or have dominion over creation. Now, got to rehab that word dominion. That's not domination. The Hebrew concept of having dominion is causing to flourish, bringing out the creative potential in this creation. So it looks like exercising energy and creativity and strength and wisdom to cause things to grow and develop. That's the commission. That's the commission. So that, so that things and people move toward the, the potential for which they were created. So our calling to fill the earth, have subdue, have dominion, cause to grow and flourish. This is language in the ancient Near East reserved for the gods. That's what the gods did. And occasionally in ancient Near Eastern literature, the gods would allow a king to be in his image. That's not what this is saying. Every single person originally designed as the image of God. Every single person co-participating with God. Theologians say vice regents or co were designed to be co-rulers with God in this earth, causing this earth to flourish through our callings, through our vocations. So this is telling us that originally, somehow we are created to share in the glory that is in partnership with God in relationship with him, in community, working and often working together to bring about the flourishing of our world through like, things like agriculture and business and education and science and beauty and politics and craftsmanship and teaching the next generation to be full of life and live life pursuing the Lord with all of their heart, mind, and strength. That's the original design. But you, if you know the storyline of Scripture, you realize the original design got broken by sin. And sin comes in. I'm going to hurry this along a little bit. Sin comes in. That glory gets lost. We become disconnected from the source, but there are hints of it everywhere. Sin comes into the relationship with God, and we become alienated from him because glory is found in him and in partnership with him, we also become alienated from that glory, though our world is chock full of signs that we are designed for that glory. The effect of sin, I'm just going to shorten this down, is that we seek glory now often apart from him, as if it's something we can get, that we can hang on to, that we can have in and of ourselves. It was never designed for that. It was always designed to have glory in partnership with God, enjoying and experiencing it through these callings made in his image. So we live in a world that have pointers to this glory everywhere. We experience it sometimes. Here's what some of those can be, like um, the satisfaction that comes from a job well done. You're like, oh, that's good, right? That's a sign that we're made for glory. The feeling that happens when we're praised and encouraged. It's okay to like that, 
right? Because we're built for glory and built for mutual encouragement. The sense of contributing to something good, being delighted in by another. Could be a friend, a spouse, a child, a parent. It's a joy, it's a, it's a pointer to glory. Real fellowship or connection of souls and friendship. Accomplishing something hard. Making something good or beautiful. Working hard and then going to bed and sleeping well. And these are good things, but they're, they're designed to be pointers to glory. Avenues to which we enjoy that. Uh, they are what we're created for, kind of. We're not created to enjoy those alone and find glory in those alone. We experience glory through that. But deep connection with the source of glory as our glory then allows us to enjoy those other things for what they are, which are signs. Um, years ago, we, I mean, for many years, we went to Florida every single year. We had relatives live down there on the Gulf Coast. We take our kids and, uh, you know, we stay with grandma and grandpa. Cheap vacation, you know, good stuff. Live right off the Gulf, you know, uh, the beaches. So we go down there. Kids love the beach. We get in, we're driving down 75, I-75, and there's like somewhere between Sarasota and Fort Myers, there's this sign, so it's like this way, Gulf Beaches this way, right, just a big sign, cool. Now, if we said, okay, got off the, the interstate right there on that ramp, went right to the gas station at that ramp, said, okay, kids, go in, change, get your swimsuits on, we're here. And we come out of the gas station, they'd be thinking, what is wrong with that? We walk up to the entrance ramp to that sign that says Gulf Beaches. Like, here it is, Gulf Beaches, enjoy it, right? Get out your pail, get out your, your shovel, start digging around. They're thinking, Dad's lost it. That's not the real thing. That's just the sign pointing to the real thing. It might even be a really beautiful sign. It might even be like, have like a little oasis by that sign. It's not the Gulf Beach. It's a sign. There are a lot of great things in our life that are Beautiful and good and signs pointing to the glory for which we are made, right? Work could be good. It is a sign pointing to the glory for which we're made. Relationships, beauty, approval are signs. They're not the thing. Now, sometimes we're miserable because we're trying to lay hold of it and it's not working out. We're miserable because we're trying to find the beach at the sign. In fact, we see if we mistake the signs for the source, they may actually become a competitor with the source. One, a harrowing thing Jesus says to the Pharisees in John 5, I'll put this in your insert. He says, how can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? How can you believe when you seek glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God. How can you believe when you focus on image management and working for the approval of your peers and those you consider higher up on the social spectrum, how can you, how can you believe when you set your affection on getting the affection of others and the applause and being special people, how can you believe when any of you are looking horizontally? You're, he's saying to these Pharisees, you've made it your goal to win the praise from each other. Our culture is built on this, friends. Like I want to look good, I want to be praised, I want to be the best, or I want to be not noticed and not scorned, all this very horizontal. And Jesus' warning is like, guys, 
All those things are pointers, they're just signs, and if you're so intent on looking at the sign, you miss the source. Lift your eyes, lift your eyes. Some of us are miserable in our work, in part because we're treating it as a source instead of a sign. Some of us are miserable in our relationships because we're simply asking a glory of them that cannot come from them. Right? Some of us grow discouraged as we get older and the, 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 uh, the bodies that used to be one way or another, another and they're not coming back. Right? They're not a source of glory. They're only a sign and something will be resurrected and renewed. Here's the good news. In Jesus, a life of glory returns. These are familiar passages, perhaps. If you turn on the back of your insert, We'll save Psalm 3 till the end. John 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him not any, was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And then down in verse 14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus comes as the truly glorious one, and he comes for you and for me. And at the end of the Gospel of John, just before he's arrested, below that, it says John 20, this is not John 20, it's John 17, typo, my fault. This is Jesus talking about you guys. Now, if, if you ever heard it eavesdropping somebody talking about you, like you get, oh man, this is, I'm gonna get a true picture. Is it gonna be good or bad, right? Sometimes it's very, I got one child here. Sometimes it's very potent to have it, your kids hear you praising them when they're not in the room, right? And sometimes if you know they're listening and they don't think that you know they're listening and you praise them, it's even super more, you know, it's, it works better. It's a little parenting trick that all of you use, right? Like we're talking about our kids when they're not there as if they're not there, but we know they're listening. So we're gonna encourage them by speaking about them in a good way. This is a remarkable thing. Jesus praying for the people in this room. This is just before he's arrested. He says, he's praying to the Father, I do not ask for these, the apostles only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Anybody ever read the, uh, the Gospels? Hey, that's you. <laughs> this is their word. That they, that they, that's the people who will believe in him, the people in this room. Here's Jesus' prayer. That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Jesus says, I want them to experience this glory and that glory is rooted in this. In me, by virtue of union with me, you love them like you love me. Guys, that is a glory that is completely independent of any circumstance in our life. Any other sign of glory in our life. Any success, any failure, any hope dashed, any dream vacated, 
It is completely independent of all of that because it comes from God alone and rests on the work of Jesus alone. And David, many years before this, anticipating this, says this in shadow form, which we can say and see in technicolor in Psalm 3. It was our call to worship, and we will end here where our service began. O Lord, how many are my foes. Many are rising up against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no deliverance, no salvation for him in God. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me. You are my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord and he answered me from his holy hill. I lay down and slept. I woke again for the Lord sustains me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. The picture is enemies camped all around David and he's like, yeah, I'm going to sleep because the Lord is my protector and my glory and the lifter of my head. The lifter of my head in the ancient Near East is a picture of moving from shame to freedom, lifting up the eyes, lifting up the head, looking in the face of God. Why is that? Many years later, Jesus, who is the only one who is full of glory, bows his head in shame for us. As he takes our sin on his shoulder to take it to the grave, and he brings us into a family that the only thing is left for us is glory. Now we can experience the, the signs of that as signs. But today, the invitation is to come to the table again, this communion table. Jesus saying, hey, you're my family. Welcome to this table. Come and dine with me. Share in my glory all over again. Let me pray and I'll invite you to this table. This is the, what is pictured in the table makes us resilient people. We can enjoy those signs of glory as they come and not be crushed by them as they're threatened because they're independent from our circumstances because this glory is held by another. If you're in Christ, the table is open to you. I will pray, invite you to go to the back, get a piece of bread and either white grape juice or red wine, come back to your seat and we'll partake together in a moment. Lord, Thank you for our work. Thank you for our relationships. Let us steward them well by not demanding of them something they could never give us. Let us be fully rooted in you and then free to serve our work, our friendships, our relationships, and you. In Christ's name, amen.